This morning we're, we're starting a new series, and I, I hope you could tell that from what's up here. Um, starting a new series called Protecting Your Community Presence. Um, most of you have probably been here before, but if you're relatively new, here at FBNO, we think is, it is extremely important what we do when we walk outside those doors. We think what we do outside of this building is extremely important. Because most of you are only here probably four hours a week. Some of you maybe six, maybe even eight hours a week. But the other 160 hours of the week is spent where? It's spent out there. And so who we are out there, what people see in us out there is extremely important. And so over the next few weeks or or really the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about protecting your community presence. How do we protect who we are out there, what people see of us out there, and, and when Dr. Crosby asked me to speak this morning. He said he was going to be out of town. He asked me to speak. I thought, man, what a great opportunity to share what I think, what I believe, um, gives us the most satisfaction in the communities in which we live. See, whether it's your home community, whether it's a school community, whether it's a church community or a work community, whether it's a city that you live in, no matter, no matter what communities we exist in and we live in, we all want the same things. We all want peace And we all want security. We all want comfort. And you see, none of these things, none of these things exist without the presence of unity. And um, and so this morning, I think if we're going to protect our community presence, we have to be unifying factors in our community. We have to promote unity. I remember when I uh, (laughs) when I first moved to New Orleans. About it's been a little over a year ago now. About a year and four months ago. Um, I'd grown up in a small town in, in South Georgia, and my whole life I'd had the same friends. My whole life. I mean, I grew up, and, and these friends just kind of fell into my lap when I was about in fifth, sixth grade. We were friends all throughout high school, friends in college, roomed together in college. I've, I kind of kept the same friends. Now, we added friends as we went along. Obviously, those weren't the only friends we ever had, but we kind of kept the same core group of friends. But when I moved to New Orleans, I realized that friends don't just grow on trees. They don't just fall into your lap. Um, and so when I moved to New Orleans, uh, my wife and I started what, what I have now come to realize is a fairly arduous process of, of making new friends. And um, the single people in the room this morning, we've got a few single people here this morning, the single people in the room think, man, all you couples, y'all have it so easy. Y'all have it so easy, man. You've got somebody else to hang out with. Y'all have got it so great. You don't have to go through this awkward dating period that we do trying to match up with somebody let me tell you, single people, when you get married, you still have to have friends. And um, I've, I've learned that the, the process of making friends is a lot more like dating friends, okay? And so um, when Rachel and I moved here, luckily we had a, a couple of people who were nice enough to invite us out to dinner. But, but you have some people you don't really know, and they invite you, to, well, why don't you come have dinner with us? You know, we can hang out, that kind of thing. And so Rachel and I would get excited about that, and, and we're trying to put our best foot forward. Rachel's in her closet trying to figure out what she's going to wear and everything. She wants to, we want to look just right and, and, and put the right image across. And uh, you get out to dinner with these people. It's, it's just like dating. You get out to dinner with these people, and you're, you're still trying to put your best foot forward. You're meeting each other. You're learning about your past. You may be telling the best story you've got, you know, reserved in your pocket that you think is going to work the best. And and then dinner's over, and, and you, you go home, and you get home, and, and 
Rachel and I have literally done this before, which is kind of crazy. I can't believe I'm telling you all this. But you go home and like, you want them to know you had a good time. Of course, you told them, yeah, we had a good time. Dinner was fun. We need to do it again. You do all that stuff. But then you get home and you start doubting. You're like, do they really know we had a good time? You know, should we send them a text message to tell them we had a really good time? And then you're like, well, no, if you do that, I don't want to smother them. I don't want them to think we're, we're desperate, that we've got to have friends right now. And, and so, um, and so maybe you do, maybe you don't. Next weekend rolls around, you haven't really received a call from you. You're like, are we supposed to call them? Are they supposed to call us? You know, and, and uh, you're going through just what is extremely awkward. It's just an awkward process trying to make friends. And um, sometimes I wonder, why in the world do we put ourselves through this? Why do we do that? Why do we go through this stuff to make friends or, or to find a mate or something like that? Um, and the reason is, is because we have a strong desire for unity. We have a strong desire for unity and the benefits, the fellowship, the comfort, the peace, the security that these relationships and these communities can bring to us. So that's what I want us to talk about this morning. And, and um, if we're going to be unifying factors in our community, man, we've got to figure out how we're going to do that. How is this going to work? How is this going to happen? And thankfully, we've got God's Word this morning, and um, it speaks directly to that. So if you've got your Bible, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, we're thinking about, man, how can we be unifying factors in our community? How can we make this happen? Philippians chapter 2. The Bible, especially the New Testament, speaks a lot about unity. Jesus talks about unity. Um, John talks about unity. Paul talks about unity throughout. Peter even talks about unity as well. So the whole New Testament is full of unity. But this passage, I think, is, is, is really great for us and will really help us see, man, how can we promote unity in the communities in which we live? How can we promote unity? Starting in verse 1, we're going to read all the way through 11. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he starts to flesh out how they're going to do that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He goes on to say, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, in this passage, Paul urges the Christians at Philippi to be unified through selfless action. He says, don't you see the unity that you have in this relationship with God? Don't you see this unity that, that, that you have through Jesus Christ in your relationship with God? Why don't you just be unified with each other? Don't you see that these same benefits would exist if you would be unified with each other? He urges them to that. And so this morning, if we're going to be unifying factors in the communities in which we live, whether it's work or school, home, whatever it may be, if we're going to be unifying factors, we have to challenge selfishness in our lives and embrace this unity through selfless action in every relationship. In every relationship, we have to be willing to do that. 
And in this passage, I think there are three things that we can really take from what Paul says, three things that, that can really help us as we're seeking to be unifying factors in our community. The first thing we've got to realize from this passage is there's no me in unity. There's no me in unity. If you've still got your, your Bibles open there, look back at verse 3 in chapter 2. There's no me in unity. Look what Paul says. Paul's just told him, be unified, man. Don't you see this is such a great thing when you're unified to Christ? Be unified to each other. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. He said, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And essentially what Paul is saying here, he's saying, man, if you want to be somebody who brings people together, if you want to be somebody who enjoys peace and comfort, if you want to be somebody who enjoys security in relationships and fellowship in relationship, you've got to forget yourself. You've got to forget yourself. There's no me in unity. And when I think about that, right off the bat, I'm like, man, that flies in the face of everything we really think and the way we really act. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but when I think about myself, man, when, when I think about unity, I think, man, if my coworkers could just be a little more like me, if they could think just a little more like I think, if their interests could be a little more like my interests, then we would be unified. Or I think, man, Rachel, my wife, if my wife, if she could just come around to the good way of thinking, you know what I mean? If she could just think a little bit more like me and do things like I do them the right way, which is just understood, if she could just do that, man, then we would, we would have perfect unity in our relationship and we would then enjoy the benefits. But Paul says, there's no me in unity. If you want to be unified, you've got to forget yourself. One of the most famous quotes in the history of our country um, comes from President Kennedy's inauguration speech in 1961. And, and President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And you've heard that so many times. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But I think President Kennedy showed a lot of wisdom with that statement. Because what he realized is he realized, man, the only chance of this huge country being unified is if its citizens stopped thinking about themselves and forgot themselves and started focusing on the interests of others. The only way that something like a country or any community could be unified is if its citizens stopped thinking about being served and start, started thinking about service. President Kennedy basically said, America, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking what this country can do for you. That's never going to bring us together. That's never going to get us anywhere. You've got to ask what you can do for this country. And you know, I think this passage of Scripture says the same thing to us. Because often, we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking the wrong questions. We're asking, man, how can my wife better love me? How could she better love me? You know, you may not be thinking that question exactly, but that's what's in the back of your mind. How can they better love me? That consumes more of our thoughts where we think, man, how can my coworkers better help me at work? How can my church better serve me? We think those questions, that's just innate in our minds. When in reality, if we want to be unified, if we want to promote unity in the communities in which we live, we've got to start asking different questions. We've got to start asking, man, how can I better love my wife? How can I better serve her? How can I better be of help to my friends? And how can I, how can I take the load off my coworkers? How can I ease their burden? Paul says, man, there's no me in unity. You want to be a unifying factor. 
The first thing you've got to do is you have got to forget yourself. The sooner we realize this, the better, and the more of a chance we stand at, at, at promoting unity in all the communities in which we live. So the first thing, there's no me in unity. The second thing I want you guys to see this morning is that though this idea of no me in unity sounds good, it may even look good on paper, it may even look good on the PowerPoint. You say, man, I'm going to go home. Maybe some of y'all are even thinking, I'm going to go home and write no me in unity everywhere. That's just, that's right. Paul's exactly right. He's gotten to the bottom of the problem. Even though that sounds great, let me tell you something. In practice, that principle is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. And the reason is, is because selflessness is never a fair fight. Selflessness is never a fair fight. I don't know how many of y'all grew up with your parents telling you to play fair, but, but my whole life, or, or really not my whole life, my parents stopped talking to me when I reached about 13 or 14. Y'all probably start, stop talking to your kids about that time as well. No, but you're, when, you're, when you're young, growing up, they always say, play fair, you know? And you're, you're convinced when you're on a team or, or whatever at school, they convince you, man, that if you're going to be a team player, you have got to play fair. You've got to play fair. And I'm not telling you you should stop saying that principle. I think, I think that's a good principle for kids to learn. If you're going to be a team player, you've got to play fair. But this morning, if we're going to be unifying factors in our community as adults, if we're going to do that, I think what we've said our whole lives, it's the total opposite now. See, in my mind, if we're going to be team players, we cannot play fair. If you're going to be a team player, you cannot play fair. Because fair to me, fair to me, and, and you realize this, I think, in just a second, is the enemy to selflessness. It's the enemy to selflessness. Fair can destroy, it can destroy our effort to be unifying factors. Let me give you an example of how that works. Um, just imagine, imagine, I, I remember this when I was in college. I know all of y'all have probably had roommates at some time in your life. Most of you have roommates now, a wife or kids or, you know, you, you live with somebody. But I remember when I was in college and I would come home some afternoons and, and I would walk in the door and, and I would look over to the kitchen. I don't, I don't know, maybe I was having somebody over. Maybe I wanted to, to cook something, which was rare, so that probably wasn't happening a whole lot. But I would look over to the kitchen and... and what would I see but just dishes piled up in the sink? I don't know. How many of y'all experienced that in college or sometime in your life? You just walk over and there's just dishes everywhere, all right? And, and to me, now not to everybody, to me that was a frustrating thing. I would walk in, I'd see these dishes because these dishes hadn't just gotten there. You know, it wasn't like they had just made something to eat and they're like, Tyler, I'm about to clean this up. Don't worry about it, man. I've got this. You know, you got somebody coming over this afternoon. I, I've got this. No, see, these dishes were the same dishes that were, that were there the morning before when I'd left, you know, and those dishes were the same ones there that were there the night before that when I went to bed and those dishes were there even the morning before that and the night before that. These dishes have been piling up for days and days and days and you get there and you're just like, man, look at these dishes. And what these dishes represent are an opportunity. Those dishes were an amazing opportunity for me to serve my roommates. I didn't want those dishes there. Maybe they weren't too worried about it. What's the obvious solution? For me to do the dishes, right? They're there. They're not mine, but they're there. And to do those dishes would be a unifying thing for, for our home community. To do those dishes would be a ministry, a great opportunity but you know what's going to stop me dead in my tracks? I may think of that right off the bat. I'm probably thinking, I could do those dishes. But you know what's going to stop me? Three words. That's not fair. That's not fair. 
That's not fair to me. I didn't put those dishes there. That's not fair. And you're probably thinking, well, Tyler, don't we have a right at least to protect ourselves? I mean, that's a little bit of self-preservation coming in here. Don't we have a right to stick up for ourselves? If not, aren't people going to walk over us our whole lives if we don't stick up for ourselves? The reality is, I think that statement, that's not fair, comes from selfishness, not out of righteous indignation. And the reason I think that is because God never promises us fair. God never promises fair. I want you to look back at this passage of Scripture. God never promises fair. Fair threatens to destroy everything we want to do with unity. Look back at, at starting in verse 5. God never promises fair. I want you to look at the life of Jesus the life that we're all supposed to emulate. I think everybody in here would agree about that. that. That is the life we're to emulate. That's the perfect life here on earth. I want you to look at Jesus' life and see if you can point out anything that's fair in the life of Jesus. Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Because, although Jesus was God, he didn't come down here to earth and then just completely grasp up there and grab this this divinity that he had this whole time he didn't consider that something to be grasped but look what he did it says he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness jesus went from having everything to having nothing and he never reached back up to heaven and tried to grab what he had before once he came down here to earth then it says in being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself which which literally means he lowered himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to look at that, and I challenge you to think about that throughout this next week. Think about the life of Jesus. Is there anything fair about the life of Jesus? Is there anything fair? You know, and you think, well, maybe, maybe at least this part where, you know, Jesus dies on the cross and now we get to go to heaven. Isn't that fair? Isn't that fair? Man, that's the least fair thing of it all, I think. But thank, thank God, thank God that, man, he never intended for everything to be fair. He never intended for everything to be fair. And this, this, this fair thing that we hold on to, this self-preservation, this self-protection will destroy our ability to serve other people. And as a result, it will destroy our ability to be unifying factors in our community. And so if we're going to be unifying factors, if we're going to be catalysts for unity in the communities in which we live... We've got to let go of fair. We can't play fair. Because selflessness has never been, it's not right now, and it never will be a fair fight. And we've got to realize that. Got to let go of fair. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, well, how, how can we do that? How can we let go of fair? I mean, I know we're supposed to be selfless if we're going to be unifying factors. I know we're supposed to give our lives and ask what we can do for others. But, but how can I let go of fair, man? How can I do that? That's, that's how I preserve my life. That's how I protect myself. I've got some good news this morning. And, and we, we saw this in the last, specifically in the last few songs that Robert sang this morning. The reason we can do this, the reason it's not impossible, is because we're in good hands. We're in good hands. Now, those of y'all who watch sports, y'all realize that this is the slogan of a, of a popular insurance company called Allstate, right? We're in good hands. And, and the guy gets on and he says, if, if, you're, if you're with Allstate, you're in good hands, right? And then he comes with this byline. And this byline is what I think is the best part of this whole slogan. He says, when you're with Allstate, you're in good hands because no one protects you better than Allstate can. 
No one protects you better than Allstate can. They're selling security. They're selling peace. They're saying nobody can protect you better than Allstate can. Let me tell you something. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are in good hands. You're in good hands. And let me tell you something. No one can protect you better than God can. No one can protect you better. And we've got to realize, not even ourselves, not even ourselves, we can't protect ourselves better than God can. And you know what? I think that's what Jesus realized that we so often don't when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane towards the end of his life and he's praying and he's saying, God, remove this cup from me. Remove it from me, you know? Nobody wants to die the kind of death that Jesus died. But then he says, but Father, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Jesus realized that, man, he can't protect himself better than God can. Nobody's looking out for him better than God is. And so I want you to look back in this passage of Scripture in verse 9, and and you'll see this so clearly right here. Jesus gives up his life to unify us with God, the perfect picture of unity. And then it says, look what God does. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I want you to realize is that God has our best interests at heart. God had Jesus' best interests at heart, and Jesus trusted that. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that God cared for him. And you know what? God cares for us too, and the Bible is clear on that. You think, well, man, that's, that's his son, Jesus. You know what I mean? He cares for him differently than he cares for us. But the Bible assures us differently. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, Cast all your anxiety on the Lord. For what? For God cares for you. For God cares for you. And, and just pass after passage, Romans eight twenty eight, which I know we all know. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But my favorites are in Matthew, and it's what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, the section of Scripture we, we have called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Matthew chapter 6, and in Matthew chapter 6, and even in 7 as well, but in 6, God says, man, I mean, not God, Jesus is talking to his disciples and others that have gathered, and, and Jesus says, and he's almost incredible, he's almost, he can't believe that they don't trust this, and he's saying to them, man, look at the birds of the air, God clothes them, I mean, God feeds them, look at the grass of the field, God clothes them, look at these things. Are you not more valuable than these things are? God knows what you need. He cares for you. Matthew chapter 7, probably my very favorite. Jesus continues on this this track and he says, Though you are evil, don't you know how to give good gifts to your kids? Don't you know how to give good gifts to your kids? Though you are evil, don't you think your Father in heaven wants to give good gifts to those who ask? God cares for us. And Jesus couldn't even believe that we didn't see that. If we're going to be unifying factors in our community, we've got to see that God cares for us and that nobody can protect us better than he can, not even ourselves. That's the only way we're going to be selfless. This morning, Philippians 2 is clear. Paul is clear. There is no me in unity. Selflessness is not going to be a fair fight. It's a tough pill to swallow. But you know what? We are in good hands. We need to live that way. So this morning, I think we have, we have two choices. We can choose self, 
We can choose self-protection, self-preservation, self-promotion, what's so natural to us. Doesn't mean we're a bad person, doesn't look like we're a bad person, you know? We can choose those things and never promote unity. We may be a part of unity because other people may promote it, but we're never going to promote it ourselves. We're never going to be unifying factors until we let go of who we are and what we want and what we think we need and how we protect ourselves. We can do that, or we can choose the life that we see in Jesus Christ. We can choose humility, selflessness, and we can promote unity. We can become catalysts for unity in every community in which we live. We can do that because God cares for us. Let's pray.